Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. We're going to take a little pause from our series in 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to do uh, what is basically a topical message on, on what is icon. And we're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Revelation. Uh, hopefully it won't take long uh, to do that. Um, but one of the key things for us uh, here at Icon is the gospel. And we talk about the gospel all the time, and we talk about it as um, a four-part story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In fact, um, oftentimes people make fun of me because I do creation, fall, redemption, and restoration like that over and over and over and over and over. But Um, It is a key piece of kind of what we believe about not just the Christian faith, that that's the best way to understand the Christian faith, um, and and not even just that it's kind of our, uh, our perspective or our lens through which we see the whole world, but the claim of Christianity is that the gospel is the true story of the world. And that, that's really a key piece. Um, that this is not us saying, hey, this is just kind of our take on things. No worries if you don't believe it. We're saying, no, this is the true story of the world. Um, and so that, that's, a, that's a big claim. Now, icon and this idea of icon um, is, is kind of weaved as a thread through the whole gospel story. And so that's what I want to do for us tonight. I want you to see how icon touches on this idea of icon touches on creation, fall, redemption, and restoration and, and why um, this matters so much to us. So to do that, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, if you are opening your Bible, that should be uh, page 1. So Genesis 1, we're going to start in verse 26. This is, we're, we're picking up the story, day six of uh, the creation story, the first creation story. Uh, and, uh, and so God has created just about everything uh, and now on day six is going to make mankind. He says this, then God said, let us make man, there should be a little footnote that says mankind, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, and this is a poem, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the first thing that God says about humanity is that we are created in his image. Image. Now, uh, the Greek word for image that we would see in the Septuagint and then throughout the rest of the Greek New Testament, uh, the word for image is the Greek word eikon, or otherwise translated icon. Okay? So this idea of icon is rooted in this very first thing that God says about humanity, which is that we are made in God's image. 
And we would say that this is the most fundamental thing about us. It's the most fundamental thing about a human is that they are made in God's image. And this has significant implications for the rest of our lives. Now, every time I read this passage, I'm reminded of um, a time that I spent in uh, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. So lived in San Francisco for four years, spent uh, a good bit of time in the Museum of Modern Art. It is a beautiful place. I am enough of an art person to be able to look at something and go, that is art and, uh, and, and, and not a lot more than that. But um, I remember walking into this kind of little annex uh, in the museum and there was a particular painting that uh, was clearly special. Right? It had its own little room, had extra lights on it, had little barriers so people couldn't get close to it, and there were a lot of people around it. And so I was kind of waiting in a line to get closer to this piece. And while I'm waiting, I'm kind of an analytical person, so I'm trying to kind of think about like, what is it about this painting that, that gives it its value? Like, what, what is it that in, in, a, in a museum full of famous paintings and, and amazing stuff, what is it about this one that makes it get its own room with its own lights and its own little red thing around it and its own line? It was the only thing I'd seen, only painting with a line to get close to it. And so as I'm kind of moving towards it, I, I start to think, and I think, you know what, it can't be that uh, the paint itself or the canvas, like the physical materials are what sets it apart because one, uh, we, we've got to have better canvases now than they had in like, you know, the 18th century or something. Um, and, and, and certainly all of the other paintings around it are using the same kind of paint, the same kind of canvas, so it, it can't be that. And, and so I'm thinking and going, well, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the colors, right? Like this painter just picked the, like the best colors and used them. And so there's like blue and some yellow and some other uh, colors. And, uh, and I'm looking at it going like, no, because like that painting that I, that's not, there's no line for has like basically the same blue and that one has basically the same yellow. And so like, you know, you can't pick the right color. It's like the good color. And so, you know, getting closer and getting closer and trying to figure this out. And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's just the composition of it. And this is just like an objectively more beautiful painting. And that's why it gets this, uh, this, this kind of attention. And I thought, well, that can't be it because art is not objective. Art is purely subjective because I've seen things that I'm like, that's awesome. And it was like in a bar. And, uh, and I've seen other things that I'm like, it was like on a ceiling of amazing building. I'm like, eh, you know, decent. Uh, and so it's like, you know, art's subjective. And so I'm like, it can't be like that this is objectively more beautiful. And I get up to the very, very front and I realize what it is. There's this little placard to the left of the painting about this big. It's white with black writing and it says Vincent Van Gogh. And I thought, ah, I've heard of that guy. That's why this painting gets this place in the museum. The, the value and the, the kind of dignity and honor that this painting got in this museum full of famous paintings is largely the result of the creator of the painting. Now, we can argue about its, you know, its beauty and its composition. It's, oh, well, no, it was the, the beauty of it that made Van Gogh, whatever. This is my illustration. The, the, the artist himself endows the painting with a certain amount of value and importance. 
that it probably wouldn't otherwise get if it weren't for his name, his stamp imprinted upon this painting. And of course, as a pastor, I'm always looking for a good sermon illustration, and this was one of them. Where I thought, yes, this is, this is the idea of the image of God, that we have inherent value and dignity and worth, not because of what we have done, not because of what we are doing, or not because of what we will do, our potential, or what we could accomplish in the world, but we have value as humans because of our creator and the Im- his image that is stamped on us. Now, um, For some of us, we hear that and it's uh, really, really good news because we maybe come in with a perceived value deficit, right? Like we look back on our lives, the past, the shameful decisions that we have made and mistakes that we have made, or maybe today our lives are not what we thought they would be or what they should be and certainly not what our parents think they should be. And so we're kind of working from a deficit. And so the idea that our value is not rooted primarily in our importance, but it's rooted in our creator is actually really good news because that actually in our minds raises our perceived value. But for others of us, and and I certainly fall into this category myself, where I walk into the room thinking I'm doing pretty well. Like I, I, I kind of feel good about the value that I'm bringing to the world, actually. Thank you very much. Like, I think I'm doing pretty well. Like, I'm exceeding my parents' expectations, which were low. I, am, I am, uh, feel like I'm doing pretty good in the world. Like, I'm probably, you know, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm succeeding. And so I feel like my value is pretty high. I look at my wife, I look at my kids, I look at my job, I look at my life overall, and I go, yeah, I'm in the upper, I'm in the upper third of most categories, right? I think to myself. And so for some of us, this idea that our value isn't rooted in our performance, but it's static, it's not dynamic, it cannot move, but it's static and it is full, uh, it, it, is, it is completely determined by who was our creator. For some of us, that's actually kind of bad news. But one of the, the important things to remember about this idea that our, our, our identity is rooted in the image of God is that we cannot affect it even one degree positive or negative. That there's nothing in our past, there's nothing in our present, there's nothing in our future that can make the dial go up or down on our inherent value, dignity, and honor at all. We have no control over it, which when we embrace that, is freedom. Like there's deep freedom in that, right? If we can come to the place and come to, kind of come to grips with the fact that we have what we have, that the, we, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make God love us less, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves more valuable, and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves less valuable, if we could actually embrace that, that would give us the freedom to just be without the burden of trying to kind of raise up that dial, raise up that value and honor. If we could just rest. But we can't. We never do. And we haven't since the very beginning. And that brings us to number two. Genesis chapter three, what we refer to as the fall, 
in this four-part story. We'll just read the first couple verses here to get the idea. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So here's what we got to get about being icons, is that we are icons no matter what we do. That there's absolutely nothing we can do, either positive or negative, to be icons plus or icon minus. We don't have to kind of strive to be icons. We wake up in the morning icons, image bearers of God, endowed with dignity and honor. And at the same time, have never once acted fully like an icon. Right, because we have to hold those two ideas together, that, that we are icons, that is fundamentally true about us and never changes about us, and that is where all of our value and dignity come from, and yet every day we wake up and act as if we're not. And it started right here. Right, so Martin Luther said, I told you this before, but Martin Luther says that every sin is at its root a failure to obey the first commandment. Now, class, what is the first commandment? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. We have so much work to do. So there's these 10 commandments in the Bible. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, this is the first commandment. Luther's argument is that every sin is at its root a failure to obey the first commandment. And this was Eve and Adam's original sin here, that Satan came to them and, and uh, inserted discontentment into the world for the first time, where he said to them, listen, your life seems great, but you're not God. There is a difference between who you are and who God is. And it was in that gap that they experienced the discontentment that caused them to sin because they wanted to be God. And every sin since then has been a human asserting their divinity to say, oh, God says that's wrong, but I think that's right, and so I'm going to do it. God says that will destroy, but I think that will bring life and satisfaction, so I'm going to do it. God says I shouldn't, but I say I should, so I'm going to. It is us trading places with God so that we can do and be what we want to do and be and not what God has asked us to do and be, not what he created us to do and be, which is image bearers of God, icons. So that's the, that's the fundamental breakdown. So this idea that um, we are fundamentally icons and yet never actually act as icons has this two-part thing. On the one hand, it, it requires us to acknowledge, listen, we aren't what we were made to be. I've told you this story before, but um, there was a period in my life where I had an opportunity to attend 16 AA meetings in a two-week span. 
I'm not an alcoholic, it's not something I've struggled with, but this was kind of a unique opportunity to attend 16 AA meetings in a two-week span. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And a couple things happened in those 16 meetings. Um, so in an AA meeting, if you've never seen or have never been in one or have never seen one portrayed on television, someone stands up and they say, hey, I'm Steve, Al I'm an alcoholic. And everyone goes, wow, you have been there. So... That happens over and over. And then Steve gets up and, and tells what, he, what they call a, a, a drunkalogue. Instead of a monologue, they call it a drunkalogue. I thought it was funnier than you do. Um, and and they, they, they kind of tell the story of how alcohol and alcoholism has, in many ways, ruined their lives. And so one thing stood out to me immediately. There was a deep seriousness when they told their stories. Because, see, there, there's a way to tell those stories. It's like, oh, yeah, back in the good old days, we used to drink 12 cases of beer and drive around town and run over, you know, like mailboxes and, and people and stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, like, oh, yeah, that funny sin we used to do. There was none of that. And that's like a pretty common human way to kind of lessen the sting or lessen the impact or lessen the seriousness of sin by kind of making it funny and ha-ha, boys will be boys, girls will be girls kind of a thing. There was none of that. There was a real seriousness to the way they told these stories because it had, it had brought real pain to their lives. And it was, they were honest about it in a way that, that was really refreshing and really powerful. And I remember sitting in the back and not saying anything, just kind of observing all of this and thinking, man, why, why is this so powerful? How are these men and women able to stand up, tell these sometimes horrific stories about their decisions and about how it would ruin their life and the life of a lot of people? I mean, there was people who had been convicted of crimes, as it was like very serious crimes as a result of, this, of their alcoholism. And they were able to stand up and tell the worst versions of these stories. And everyone around them listened and loved them and accepted them and heard their stories. And I thought, gosh, how does, how, why is this happening here? And why doesn't this happen at church? And it, and it occurred to me, uh, near the end of my time, it occurred to me that the moment these men and women walk through the doors into these rooms, the moment they walk in, the act of walking into the room, the act of walking into an AA meeting, is them admitting need. It's them admitting, they walk in the door and say, I am an alcoholic. Just walking in the door is saying, I am an alcoholic. This is something about me that I need help with. I can't do it on my own and I need you. And it has gotten to a place where they go, I, I need something outside of me. And so they walk in and, and they're in a place where it doesn't make any sense to walk in and go, yeah, I like a few beers, but it's not a big deal. Everyone would look at them and go, then why are you here? It doesn't match the seriousness of the activity with the act of walking in. And, it, and I had this moment where I thought, gosh, when we walk into the doors of a church, now I get that some of you are here and you're not Christians and you're just kind of checking things out and I get that and I'm super glad you're here. But for Christians, we walk in the doors of this church or we acknowledge our faith and the central symbol of our faith is the cross. 
which, which is a symbol of God. It's the, it's the memory of God looking down on his creation and going, it is so heinous and so sinful and so dark and so broken and so evil that the only solution is God going to die. That's the only thing we, that can solve this problem. And yet so often we walk into church and act as if we have the kind of lives that require like a much lesser solution. And in fact, we walk in and pretend we're the kinds of people that honestly the cross would be a massive overreaction for. Like chill out, God. Like I've done some things, I get it. And I was a kid and I was stupid and whatever. And I'm, I get that I'm a little selfish and I tend to gossip and okay, fine. But dying on a cross? chill God right this is how we live this is how we this is how we portray ourselves as if we've actually kind of got this thing together and we've got this thing handled and the cross is like oh kind of awkward not really necessary instead of the fact that we ought to be walking into the doors of a church going like I'm I'm in need God died for me and that was my only hope that's all I could do. That's, that's, woo. <laughs> Saved it. That was it. That, that's all, that's the only, that's the only way I have life. I, I walk in in deep need as, as not just an alcoholic. I mean, that's the least of my worries. I was so filled with sin and so oriented towards myself that God, the God of the universe had to come and become a man and be beaten and tortured and killed just so I could have life. And if that was the presupposition, why in the world would we ever hide our sin? Why would we ever walk into a church and pretend like we're not that bad, like we don't have that big a problem, like sin does not master us? Why would we ever do that? Because when we do that, we say God really overreacted. It's not a big deal. The cross was probably for them, but not really for me. And man, hiding Hiding is tiring. Hiding is exhausting. Because you're covering and covering and covering and covering and pretending. and It's just exhausting. The, the invitation of the gospel, the invitation to be an icon in this sense is to admit, like, I was made for this, but I don't do it even a little bit. And the only way the only way that it would be possible for us to walk in this is if this is actually the central symbol of our lives. The only way we can actually walk in open repentance and speak honestly about what lies in our hearts and the actions and decisions that we've made is in a context of grace. Which is why Colossians 1 is such an important part of what it means to be an icon. So turn there, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is the only true icon. The only person who has fully embodied what it means to be the image of God. Verse 15 testifies, he is the image of the invisible God. He is our example. He is what we could look to, to say, okay, what does it, what does it mean? I mean, I get this idea that we're image bearers of God, but what does that mean? And we look to Jesus and go, okay, that's, that's what it means. But I got to say, like, this whole thing would be a, a terrible story. This would not be gospel. It would not be good news if Jesus was only an example of what it means to be an image bearer of God. He's so much more. It says that he, uh, through him, verse 20, all things were reconciled, heaven, whether on heaven and earth, and he made peace by the blood of his cross. I've used this uh, illustration before, but it, it's a really, really good one. Um, so I'll use it again. But uh, out of curiosity, how many of you are in advertising or marketing by show of hands? Great. Um, you're the worst, okay? Every advertisement you have ever seen, and whether that's for a product or for a movie or for uh, especially like a political advertisement, everything you have ever seen in terms of advertising or marketing tells the gospel story, but it distorts it fundamentally. In fact, this is part of why I would argue that the Bible is the true story of the whole world and not just the Christian's kind of take on it because all stories tell the gospel story but just substitute out different characters. So follow me if you will. Each advertisement you've ever seen, whether implicitly or explicitly, tells you what you were made for, what you are supposed to be like, but it points out your flaws, the significant way in which you are not what you were made to be. And then there's a solution. And that solution is the product or the person or the politics or whatever that is the solution to the problem of why you are not who you are made to be. But if you buy the solution or vote for the solution or, or walk into the solution, then you will be who you were made to be. That's every advertisement you have ever seen in your life. I just did your job for you if you're in marketing. Let me give you an example. Most uh, car commercials and beer commercials are aimed at men. And they basically all tell the same story, that men, you are made to be strong, you're made to have lots of hair, you're made to be much better looking than you are, and surrounded by women. But the reality is that you're bald and you're 30 pounds overweight and nobody likes you. But... If you drank our beer or drove our Chrysler, then you would be in better shape with women all over you, your hair blowing in the wind while driving on the Autobahn with Coors Light, right? Like, this is, 
this is what you were made for, and the only thing missing is the Coors Light, and then you'd be who God made you to be. This is the story. Um, slightly different story for women. My favorite example of this is um, uh, the, the, the old magic bullet commercials. If you guys remember those, they were on in the middle of the day or late at night. I don't ask why I was watching TV then, but this is what they were. The magic bullet is like this blender thing. And so the beginning of all of these would actually always start kind of with the fall, right? Like implying what, what could be. But they were always in black and white right? And the mom was just very frazzled as she's trying to make smoothies for her um, honestly not very attractive children. And, uh, and, and, and they were unruly. And every time she'd put the bananas and all the stuff in and she'd hit blend and it would explode. There was like a demon in the blender and it would explode and she's, you know, and, and again, it's in black and white for some reason. And then the magic bullets. And all she had to do was put her delicate little finger on the top of the magic bullet and it would blend a smoothie immediately. It would, the world would become color. She dropped 20 pounds and her hair is in great place and her kids are miraculously obedient and much better looking. And they're like totally different kids. I think that's part of the promise. Like if you get the magic bullet, you'll get new kids too. Um, and moms are like, sign me up. And, uh, and so this, this, is, this is the same thing. This is telling the gospel story. This is who you could be, a great blendering person. This is who you are, this disaster of a black and white person. And if you had our product, then you'd have good-looking kids. This is the promise of the gospel. So every product, every politician, every idea sells this same basic story. You were meant for more, but you're not. But if you had our thing, you could be. That's the story. There is nothing in all of the universe that can satisfy the deep need in your soul other than Jesus. There is just simply not. In fact, I will go a step further and say that there is not a problem you face. There is not an issue in your life, past, present, or future, that the answer isn't at the end of things, when you pull it all apart and get down to the most essential thing where the answer isn't Jesus and the gospel. That is the root answer for every question and every problem without exception. And if you think you have an exception, text a question into the text number on your bulletin. This is the answer. Because here's the thing, we've spent our whole lives thinking we know that the next thing is the thing that will solve it, that will, that will make us whole and heal up the problems and, and, and give us the joy and the satisfaction that we long for. And we've spent our whole lives thinking it's the next person, the next job, the next place, the next thing. It's the next thing. Not remembering that the current thing was the last thing's next thing. And so we just chase the next thing over and over and over. The only thing is Jesus. The only thing is the truth of the gospel. That's the only thing that can actually lead to the kind of joy and satisfaction that you know you need and you look for in everything and everybody else. I talked about this with marriage. Your spouse or your, your soon-to-be spouse or your maybe-someday spouse or the spouse you dream about at night will not give you the kind of joy you long for. They will give you joy, ideally. But they will not give you ultimate joy. 
They will give you peace. But they will also bring you pain. They will give you happiness, but they will also give you sorrow. The only one who brings the kind of wholeness and satisfaction that your soul longs for is Jesus and the gospel. Lastly, Revelation chapter 21. We've looked at creation, fall, and redemption. That icon is our identity. That icon is the purpose for which we were made. That Jesus, the only true icon, is the solution. And now, Revelation 21, the first five verses, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, notice this. Because we all spend a lot of time thinking about how to solve some big problems of the world. We all spend a lot of time trying to solve the little problems of our lives. The promise of Revelation 21 is twofold. One, there will come a day where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. Two, that day will not come until Jesus declares it so. Which means that whatever we think is the solution to the big problems of the world will help or could help, but will not create the utopia we think it might. So whether you think the answer is uh, uh, education or overcoming poverty or this political platform or that political platform, all of them could help. None of them will solve the problem. Here's what that means. God has given us uh, a, a hope of what will come. And, in, and until then, he has given us a mission that we are on, that we are his agents of reconciliation, that we have work to do along the way to bring about these little moments of the kingdom of God, that we would be a display people of the kingdom of God, that we would live as icons of God, that we would do all these things knowing full well that we will never fully accomplish it until Jesus comes back and does it himself. Now, the mission that we are on, and this is the last idea for ICON, is um, that we would be, as a church and as individuals, um, kind of beacons of light to our city, and specifically to our neighborhood here in Capitol Hill. Now, I remember back, and some of you were at um, one of our very first meetings together at the, uh, the other church, and, uh, and we did a prayer walk around Cal Anderson Park, and um, after uh, the, we were walking around, and we were going to come back and kind of huddle up and talk about what we heard and what we prayed about and all of this. And I remember walking around the park, and I saw a 35-year-old a man dressed like a unicorn. 
And I was like, man, it's Wednesday, you know, and, uh, and, and that, it wasn't that big a deal. But I got back to uh, the church and I said, hey, uh, who saw the unicorn? And about half the people raised their hands. Half the people were super confused. And all the little girls were like, what? I missed a unicorn. Uh, we'd kind of talk them down from that. Um, but what I said that night was, we will know that we are accomplishing our purpose as a church when we see a 35-year-old man dressed as a unicorn, and our first instinct is image bearer of God. That we recognize that mask for what it is. The, it, simply the outermost mask of many that he is wearing. Not fundamentally different than the outermost mask that I am wearing today to make you think certain things about me that I'm a respectable person worthy of listening to. And he puts on that unicorn costume to make people think, I'm not sure what exactly. But whatever it is, it's just, it's just a mask. It's just a mask. And we all wear masks. We all wear multiple layers of masks. It doesn't hide the fact, it doesn't change the fact that he is an image bearer of God. And that is the truest thing about him. That icon is the truest thing about me and it is the truest thing about him. Uh, only a, a couple of weeks ago, we were in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And there's a, there's a section in 1 Corinthians, uh, actually in chapter 6, that, that always sticks out to me. And, and it's this. Paul says in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's something in us, many of us, that goes, yeah, those people cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They've got to get that stuff figured out before they can inherit the kingdom of God. And then for those of us who respond that way, very unfortunately, Paul continues and says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Which means that the church in Corinth was full of those kinds of people. And we go, yeah, 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 we were. Remember, it's past tense. So we were that, but now we've got that figured out and we've got it handled and we're the kinds of people that can get into the kingdom of God. And yet Paul continues again so frustratingly. But you were washed you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, just a, a brief grammar lesson. Those three verbs, washed, sanctified, justified, who's doing the action in those verbs? Is it us or is it God? Class? So let me get this straight, that the difference between us that are in the kingdom of God and them who cannot be in the kingdom of God is the timing of God's action. Not my action, not something about my behavior, but it is about what God has done in me and for me that is the only difference here. See, in the most fundamental way, there is no such thing as us and them. There is no them. There is only we. There is only image bearers of God. That's the fundamental category. 
and, and, and yet practically everybody has a them. Everybody has a they that, they, that they're different from, that they're, they're, you know, we may not say it out loud or we may not be explicit about it, but there's just something worse about them, less about them, ridiculous about them, stupid about them, uh, ignorant about them. In the gospel, there is no them. There is only we. And there are we who, by the grace of God, have been washed and sanctified and justified by God's action, not my action. And there are those who, as yet, are not. And that's, and that's for God to figure out, not for me. So this, this stuff about image of God and icon is, is not, uh, and, and by design, not kind of an ethereal, uh, a, a kind of distant theological idea that these four ideas, that, that uh, icon is our identity, that icon is our purpose, that icon is our hope and solution, and that icon is our kind of missional posture towards the world. That these are, these are walk-out-the-door-every-single-day kinds of things. That every day, all day, we're trying to decide, who am I? The answer is icon. We're all day, every day, we're trying to decide, what is the good life? What am I aiming for? The answer is icon. That every day, all day, we're trying to answer the question, what is the solution? What is my hope? The answer is icon. And every day, all day, we're trying to answer the question, who are they and what's my relationship with them? And the answer is icon. That it is the truest thing about us and it's the truest thing about them. That it's the end of all our endeavors and it's our only hope to ever accomplish it. This is why we exist as a church. This is the witness that we want to be to our neighborhood. That these things aren't just true about us, but they're true about them. That they are made in the image of God. That they were created, the purpose, the telos, the reason for which they were made was to fully reflect the image of God. And that their only hope to do so is the same as our only hope to do so, which is the act of God in them. That's what we bear witness to as a church and as individuals. That's my hope and it's our prayer for our church. Let's pray. Jesus, we, I am, I am so thankful that um, you are the, uh, the only true image bearer in that you have set an example for us what it means to be um, an icon most fully, that we can look to you as our example, but it doesn't end there. Because if you had left uh, the planet and gone back to heaven and just said, all right, guys, that's the bar, meet it, we would be hopeless and without expectation of ever reaching it. So yes, we are icons. And yes, icon is our goal, it is our purpose, it is our telos. But icon, you, the only true image bearer of God, are also the hope to ever be what we need to be. To ever become what we are. So God, I pray that that give us uh, a, a posture towards the people around us that we are as needy as they are. We are as dependent on the grace and love of God as they are. And we are as helpless to affect our value, our dignity, our worth, even one degree. That that is all rooted in God.
and his deep love for us. Pray that we would bear witness to that, that it would be a, a winsome idea in the hearts and minds of our friends and our family, our coworkers, and the people in our neighborhood and in our city. In Christ we pray, amen. All right, let's, uh, let's answer a few questions. Um, we have a couple questions here. Um, first, what's the gospel balance to owning and naming the realities of our sin, but also living in the truth of God's restoration and sanctification in our lives? That's a great question. And um, one that is, I think, massively important and constantly practically difficult. So the, the question is essentially, um, how can we be honest and, and, uh, and, and real about our sin while also living in the truth of the fact that that sin doesn't own us anymore and doesn't define us. And I, I would say a couple things on this. One, first of all, um, God's grace and love for you is only fully understood when we are able to fully understand uh, the depth of our sin. Okay? So the deeper our knowledge of our sin goes, the more profound God's love is to us. And so as long as we're able to hold those things in tension, they, never, they, they shouldn't get out of balance. The way they do get out of balance is when we are uh, kind of over aware of our sin without the, the kind of corresponding understanding of God's love for us, or we only want to think about God's love for us uh, to the kind of negation of our sin, which, which just by its very nature means we have a shallow understanding of God's love. If we are not able to really wrestle with the depth of our sin, we cannot fully understand the depth of God's love. Now, here's why it's practically different, and this is one of my favorite kind of ideas, and it's about Satan. That sounds weird. But um, it, it, most of my understanding of Satan and demons comes from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, which is not scripture, but it's close. And, and one of the ideas from that, uh, from that text that I think is so important is basically no matter what we do, no matter what the, the subject in, in the book uh, does, the demons conspire to move him off uh, the gospel and deeper into whatever it is. And it honestly doesn't matter. So think of it this way. The moment you think of your sin, Satan is going, yeah, you're terrible. You are the worst. In fact, you have no idea how bad you are. No one could love you. If you were ever honest about this, then no one would even be able to look you in the eye. They wouldn't even be able to talk to you. They wouldn't be friends with you because what you're talking about is so gross and so bad and so evil and it pushes us down. But if the moment we go, no, 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 God loves us though and, and God has grace for us, Satan goes, yeah, so much love. I mean, I, you're, you're so lovable and so amazing. Like, of course God loves you. Why wouldn't he love you? You're the best. You are so incredible. I mean, do you ever do anything wrong? I mean, you are just, and he wants to elevate. And we go, wait, wait no, I, I have done something wrong. I, I have sinned. Yeah, you have actually, <laughs> now that you mention it. And it's bad. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't know how I forgot about it. I don't know how you forgot about it because think about how ugly and disgusting that is and, and just whatever you do, don't tell anybody about that because they'll hate you forever, 
right? Like no matter what it is, I mean, no matter the subject matter, if we talk about work and we go, okay, I need to work hard. Satan goes, yeah, you better work hard because your whole future depends on it. You go, wait, no, no, no. My, my future doesn't depend on work. Work's not that big a deal. And Satan goes, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, uh, is it Wednesday already? Let's, uh, let's take the weekend off here, right? Like, uh, who cares? It's not that big a deal, right? Just no matter what, he's going to drive us into sin. He's going to drive us away from the truth of the gospel. So holding those two things in tension together is so important because we cannot know the love of God if we do not know, do not know the depth of our sin. So it's just incredibly important and really difficult, which is why we need community, why we need people in our lives, why we need preaching, why we need all these things to remind us of the dual nature of that truth, that we, uh, as Tim Keller says it, we are more sinful than we would ever dare admit and more loved than we ever dare hope. And both at the very same time, okay? So that's number one. Question number two. What is biblically the difference that makes humans God's image bearers and not animals, especially taking into account biological evolution of animals into humans. Now, I'm not going to get into the the biological scientific part of it, only because um, the scriptures are really clear about why uh, God's relationship with humanity is fundamentally different. Now, um, I, I think that Christians over time have probably devalued uh, creation and animals and the rest of God's created world in ways that have been uh, uh, bad, right? Like have hurt the environment and done all those things. And in no way should an emphasis on the unique relationship between God and mankind uh, feel like it enables us to then take advantage of the rest of God's creation. From the very beginning, our first job was to care for and cultivate God's creation, that we are stewards of it. So that doesn't, that doesn't change. But in Genesis chapter 2, when, um, when God creates mankind, it's one of my favorite sections in all of the scriptures. It says, verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, however you read Genesis 1 and 2, and believe me, I know all the ways. No matter how you read it, God is trying to communicate a unique relationship with mankind that he doesn't have with the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the fruits and the veg, just whatever else, cows in particular. There, there's just a difference. And so when he tells the story, he tells it in a way that says the way in which humankind became alive is that God breathed into his nostrils. And, and so there is, from the very beginning, an intimacy to God's relationship with mankind that is different from everything else. Because I'll say it this way, there are not a lot of things and in fact not a lot of people that I would get close enough to to breathe life into your nostrils. Most of you, not going to happen, okay? Maybe if you're dying, maybe. But the only people that I would willingly get that close to are uh, my wife and my kids. They seem to want to get that close to me all the time, right? Like my son is just here on me, breathing into my ear. You never think you'll have to say things like, hey, don't breathe into my ear, okay? Like, just don't do that. Like, you wouldn't think you'd have to say that to a human. But I do all the time. 
And, and so there, there, is, there is a baked-in intimacy there that's just totally different. So uh, aside from kind of the biological realities, which I, I'm going to get off on a tangent here. I, I think the scriptures, and specifically in Genesis 1 and 2, are trying to do a different thing. And they're trying to communicate something about God, and they're trying to commu- communicate something about God's relationship with his creation, and particularly the uniqueness of God's relationship with mankind, which by his choice is unique. So the simple answer is because God chose to have unique relationship with mankind, the more complicated answer is because he breathes into our face. Got that? Okay. Last question. How would you coach a new believer to humbly, boldly, and winsomely speak about the truth of the icon they imitate to their non-believing coworkers or to friends who have known God but have rejected him? Um, Great question. I would start by just being an image bearer of God. Bear witness to the image bearing quality that you have in your life. Be God. That's it. Okay, just low bar. But, but lean into that. Before you need to talk about it, lean into it. Secondly, I would say, but be ready to talk about it too. And here's how. There, there, is, there is no room for arrogance in the gospel. There's just no room for arrogance in the gospel. Every piece of the gospel is about God's goodness and our weakness, or God's goodness and our evil, God's provision and our deep need. That's the story of the gospel over and over and over and over. So if you want to talk about uh, uh, you, the, you know, the fact that you're an image bearer and the, the, the you know, Christ, the true image bearer that you are trying to reflect, man, it is only and always a story of humility. It's a story of need. It's a story of dependence. It's a story of God's provision. It's a story of who, you know, God's love for us. There, there ought not to be any place for arrogance in it. God's acting. God's saving. God's wooing. God's loving. We are responding as humbly as we possibly can to God's preemptive love for us. Okay? So uh, model it. Be it. And when opportunities arise to talk about it, man, just talk about it like, yeah, it's crazy. Like, God loves me. I mean, you know me. I don't know why, right? Like, you, it just, there, there's, there's nothing but humility in it for us to, to, to bear witness to the goodness of God over and over and over for us, even, even when and especially when we don't deserve it.